the challenge ahead of us is like ridiculous. Like when you really run the numbers, how much CO2 we emit as, as humanity and how much we actually need to cut emissions and then how much we need to remove just to give you some numbers. If we would scale back now to the scale needed, we would spend like 12 to 25% of world GDP just on, on carbon removal, which will never happen. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience beyond the future of our planet. For this episode, we welcome Rene Haas, CEO at NeoCarbon, a direct air capture startup essentially reversing climate change. We break down what we mean by direct air capture and the important role it plays in the future of our planet, the commercialization opportunities for the captured carbon, the technicalities and how direct air capture compares to other methods available to tackle climate change and lots more. One quick point before I pass over to Rene, if I may ask a favor, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Rene. I'm Rene. I'm co-founder of NeoCarbon. We yeah, are a direct air capture company, so removing CO2 from, from ambient air from the atmosphere um, to do something about the climate crisis. Special about us is that we are piggybacking on existing infrastructure. So we utilize what is already out there to really cut the costs and also speed up the deployment. We are a team of, of engineers. I myself, I'm an industrial engineer with a background in energy and resource management. My co-founder is also like more a technical person and most people at the team are scientists and developing the tech and now just build our first unit, which we are quite proud of. Now it's about getting it out there and scaling it to, to the first initial pilot plans and then more and more units. And Rene, you've decided to dedicate your life to, to tackling climate change. Which is, which is incredible. And we really need sort of more people working on this challenge because it's going to take everyone working together. I mean, you've got the US's Inflation Reduction Act in yeah. the UK. You've got some new sort of government grants being released, EU similar. Where would you say we're at at the moment in terms of the sort of scale of challenge ahead of us? The challenge ahead of us is like ridiculous. Like when you really run the numbers, how much CO2 we emit as, as humanity, and how much we actually need to cut emissions and then how much we need to remove just to give you some numbers. Like right now, total direct air capture amount worldwide is 0.01 megaton and we need to scale to 85 megaton. So like a ridiculous factor until 2030 and then even up to some gigatons by 2050. So basically this industry has to grow way, way faster than every industry ever has been growing before. Also, the technology is still quite early, so it's not that it was researched for, let's say, 50 years. So most companies just started like as really pioneers 13, 14 years ago. And what you can really see in the, especially in the last year, I think, was really a change in the regulations, like what you just mentioned, US Inflation Reduction Act, especially mentioning Q45, same now in the UK, seeing also the European Union a bit behind. I have to say they are more reacting. Also, we are engaging with them. A lot, we feel like they, they wanted to do something, but also building the right regulations is very hard when you don't know what kind of technology will succeed and how will this technology look like. So it's very hard to set a framework mm -hmm. with high uncertainty, which is still in the technology. But I would say it's the, it's the early days and it's going to scale fast, but it also needs to scale till 2030. Otherwise, we will never achieve the 2050 targets at all. You mentioned the 2030 target. I read the other day that in order to actually meet the 2030 target of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 
this is going to require a circa 1 trillion euro investment per year up until that point. A scary big number, right? And also we're, we're sort of dealing with a challenge where there are new technologies and new capabilities that still don't exist. About 29% of emission reduction by 2030 are going to come from new technologies that don't exist today, which is quite a scary concept, but I guess also an exciting concept as well. Yeah, it's super, super exciting to work in this industry, but also sometimes when you are like confronted with the, the hard reality and you feel like, okay, I don't know this, I don't know this, I know I need to achieve that and that till this moment in time, but most of the technologies are not there, especially direct air capture. No one, like people have proven that it can work, which is a tremendous success, especially of Climeworks, but no one has proven that it can be a viable case in that sense. And that's also why I see a lot of regulations are heavily needed because at the moment, from my point of view, it's it very unfair that you can just pollute the atmosphere, can damage basically the health of everybody on the planet without paying for it. So it's, it's a super unfair thing. And I think more and more politicians, regulations like realize that and really looking forward to the, to the next years because they will basically decide if this industry will pick up or, or not. So we are really at the, at the, at the edge, I would say, where we need to, to scale up this technology, like, like in ridiculous amounts. So yeah, and it's very exciting. The, and the, the point of regulation is, is quite an interesting one, because if you compare the, the EU to the US minutes, you have taken quite a regulation centered approach to, to tackling this. So forcing people's hands, whereas the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, as we mentioned, is much more focused on monetary incentives to incentivize the private sector to act. And it, it's going to be interesting to see which one, what, which one wins. Personally, I think that there, it needs to be a bit of a blend. Ultimately, the business cases need to, need to be in place so that the private sector is incentivized to act. But then equally, when you create an environment where the business cases are funded by, by grants, then that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a, an equilibrium met. Yeah, I totally agree. So it's different approaches. Both are kind of in favor of, of carbon removal technologies, which is, which is a good thing. We have to see what will be the more like successful approach. I think also besides the ones you mentioned, also Norway, I think is also discussing a, a tax incentive structure, which, it, which might be even higher than the US structure. And what is interesting about Norway is that this country has a lot of experience also with sequestration. So they sequester CO2 basically, I think, since 1996. So they have already some decades in experience really storing also the CO2, which is also an important part. A lot of people are missing. Like there are a lot of players, like also we are working on really carbon removal, but it's also always a question, yeah, what do you do with the CO2? How do you make sure that it's not entering the atmosphere again? which is also super critical to answer and a, and a big challenge. Absolutely. So I guess let's dive into the, to the capture part. So direct air capture. So there'll be people listening who maybe aren't familiar with, with that. Could you break it down for us and really explain what it is that we're referring to here? Yeah. So what is, what is interesting to say about direct air capture? It's a carbon removal, meaning you, you take CO2 from ambient air, which is a huge driver of, of climate change and mineralize it or store it somewhere, meaning an old field, let's say two, three kilometers below the earth's surface. And you do this with, with big machinery. So basically like, I always say it's like a big washing machine for, for ambient air. So you have a huge ventilator blowing a lot of air in your, in your unit, in your unit is a certain chemical. A sorbent or solvent, liquid or solid, 
this one, this, this chemical is highly attracted by the CO2. So the CO2 gets attached to it while all the nitrogen, oxygen, everything else just goes through your unit and just passes the sorbent. After a certain amount of time, like can be an hour, one and a half hours, depending on your, on your cycle time, your sorbent is saturated. So it can't capture more. What you then do, you close your system and, and you create a vacuum and heat up your unit to 90 to 100 degrees. And then you can release the CO2 as nearly pure stream. So it is above 90% purity compared to before where it was 0.04% pure. So only one out of 2000 molecules, which is ridiculous. Like it's highly diluted, but it has a huge impact on our climate. Like you have this pure stream and this stream, you either mineralize or you like pump it back into oil and gas fields and store it there for, yeah, hopefully quite some thousands, either some millions of years to really remove it from the atmosphere. And then you have less of the, the greenhouse gas effect. So that's, I would say how the, how the temperature vacuum swing works in a nutshell, which is the most yeah researched approach so far to, to direct air capture, but there are some other approaches of course too. And one of the things that really excites me about direct air capture is that if you look at a lot of initiatives and efforts to tackle climate change at the minute, a lot of it focuses on decarbonizing industrial processes, for example. Direct air capture not only slows climate change, but it almost reverses climate climate change. It actively removes carbon from the atmosphere. The thing is, decarbonizing is something we we need to do. Like cutting industrial emissions is definitely a, a thing to do. It's more a challenge of doing it fast enough. So industries are adapting too slow. At least what we see since years over years, not no one achieving that climate targets. Basically, direct air capture has this potential to like get the whole levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, but to like to 100% reverse climate change in that sense, if you are exact, it's not 100% possible because if I don't know, the glacier was melting, then, then it's just not there anymore. Like also when you achieve the old CO2 levels, it will not be there. You need to achieve way, way lower CO2 levels so that it will be there. So you can't reverse every effect of climate change, but you can have a very, very positive impact especially when you, when you want to reach net zero, meaning no further CO2 emissions, there are just some industries you can't decarbonize them. Either it's not possible from a, from a technical point of view to capture 100%. So maybe you can just capture 95% of your like flue gas stream. So if you need to do the rest with direct air capture, or it would be just way, way costly. So even if you could do it on a, on a technical basis, it just doesn't make sense because the cost captured per ton would be so high that, that no one basically could afford it. So we, we definitely need to decarbonize and direct air capture is a solution for, for us in, in the sense of like getting those very high price emissions in, but also when we overshoot our, our climate targets, which is obviously qu quite likely, unfortunately. And I mean, clearly DAC is critical, not optional to where we're at at the minute and we need as much of it as, as possible. How mature is the marketplace? So that's the thing for many, many years, according to IPCC, direct air capture was always optional and it just changed in the, in the, in the recent years. Um, so that we say, okay, we, we're just emitting so much. It's just not possible to do everything with just avoidance. We, we actually need to remove CO2, but it's still in its early days. First, the technology is still quite early, I would say, compared to other technologies. Like, for example, if you think of solar, which started in 1975, DAC, most DAC companies started like 2009, 2010, so very recent. And also the market is quite early. So 
the amount of carbon removal buyers, like technical carbon removal, you can check out on cdr.fyi. These are like roughly 100 companies, not even, I think, mainly driven by buyers like Shopify, Stripe, Microsoft. So big software players that can basically afford it or from players like, like Airbus, which made one of the biggest purchases because they needed also for their sustainable aviation fuel, because otherwise they might not have a business in the future. If let's say certain regulations force them to actually pay for the CO2 payment, yeah, destroyed basically all their business if they, if they can't do direct air capture at scale. So it's, it's still, everything is still early. Everything is a mess which is also very hard for us as a, as a company. So it's not only from a technological side, still a risk. It's also from a, from a market side, a very high risk because there's so much uncertainty. And if a big regulation, for example, kicks in tomorrow and makes it, for example, in Europe mandatory to trade carbon removal certificates on the ETS market, it would be ridiculous. Like we would have like a thousand times more demand than supply and prices would like skyrocket. But if it's not there, everything is like kind of make and it makes a lot of sense also for others company to bridge that gap with a utilization case for the very niche yeah, industries that need CO2 as a feedstock. I do want to touch on the carbon market in a, in a second, but just before I do that, carbon capture is quite a suite of, of capabilities. So you've got direct air capture, you've also then got point source capture. Would you mind just sort of explaining the difference between direct air capture and point source capture and what the two approaches look like in the market at the minute? So basically it's a, it's a difference between avoidance and removal. So when you, let's say you have a fume stack with very high concentration of, of CO2, basically from your industrial process, meaning you have like 15, 20% pure CO2. And then at the end, you kind of have a filter to filter out 90% of of the CO2, which is quite cheap because you have this high concentrations, and then you avoid further emissions of entering the atmosphere, but you will still always have like certain emissions in the atmosphere. Like it's very hard and very expensive to capture the last, let's say one, 2%. So it, the costs come higher and higher, the higher you go from, from the, from the capture rate. And what's the difference to direct air capture? Direct air capture is processing ambient air. So CO2 concentration of 0.04%, so basically nothing. And that's the only way you can basically get rid of like also past emissions, historical emissions, but also for the industries where it's very, very hard to basically capture at all, like 90% of the emissions, like for example, in aviation or in transport. And for those who really need to do removal, meaning really net removing CO2 from the atmosphere compared to avoidance meaning like avoiding further emissions entering the atmosphere. So that's a huge difference, but it not everywhere clearly defined yet. For example, the European trading system, you only trade avoidance credits, but not removal credits because it's such a young and early technology, I would say. What are the infrastructure and hardware requirements to build a DAC plant? So for a DAC plant, of course, you, you need to build hardware. You need to build machines for, for that. You need a certain amount, of course, of of groundwork, you need also quite some energy. So especially when you go with this like temperature vacuum swing approach, which is the most common approach, you also need a lot of heat for the desorption. So removing the CO2 from, from your, from your chemical. And then another very like important requirement is you need to be close to, to storage sites. So for example, if you captured CO2 somewhere and then you need to transport it for, I don't know, thousands of kilometers, and maybe even you have to put it on a truck and bottle it and whatever. 
your like CO2 balance or LCA would be, would be horrible. So being close to the sequestration sites and having the energy for, for desorption in place is, is very, very critical. So I would say those are the two main things. There are, of course, some other things like permits and access to some chemicals and so on. But those are the two, two major things. Those are all quite significant challenges and quite large hurdles for a startup founder. What is this like for you? You're tackling one of the, well, the biggest challenge that humanity faces. And you're picking a extremely asset intensive solution to that problem. What made you, what made you go into this? That's a very good question. I think in general, even though it's a lot of pain, I, I like challenges a lot. So also in my private life, I like to do this extreme sports, like this extreme challenges. I think it's also for me personally, when starting Neo Carbon was very important for me to stand for something. So I wanted to work on a product that I wanted to see in the world. Of course, it, it needs to be a, a business case because we live in a capitalistic system. So it's, if it's not a business case, I will never have an impact. I just love challenges and it's just something that excites me. So I would also encourage even more people working on their challenge, even when they become a competitor in that sense, because it's not so much about competition because the amounts we need to remove are, are so big. Like it's, it's ridiculous when you really run the number, you're like, okay, like, I don't know, 100 million more people should start companies in that field. And then we might have a chance to solve that. So the more people joining, the better it is. Just on the point around competitors, I mean, you mentioned Climeworks earlier. Climeworks have the largest stack plant in, in production at the minute called, called Orca. How does your approach differ to them? And what is it about NeoCarbon that makes you special? So, so first of all, of course, I need to thank Climeworks. I, and I have to say, because they, they built kind of that, that industry and, and without them, a lot of other DAC players would, would not be around. What they do different than we are doing. They are building on a green field. So they're building massive plants close to the storage part and where they also have some, some access to, to energy. So that's why Orca is in Iceland. What, what we realized is we don't only need like the geothermal energy from, from Iceland, but there is a lot of waste heat from industrial processes all around the world, which we can also leverage for this option. So our approach is focusing on this like retrofitting because the retrofitting brings you the waste heat. But it also saves you a lot of money on the groundwork and because we don't need to build like all the roads, all the infrastructure from scratch, like, like Climeworks needs to do. And we can also like do service, maintenance, all of that way faster because we are there where the industrial player is already. And we, we are not basically creating a new industry, but we are more enabling the old economy to shift around, which, which is also nice for the, like from a, I would say social point of view. And then of course, kind of the, the third advantage is especially not only looking into the waste heat streams, but also looking into the, the airflow, which we are leveraging. You have a lot of airflow in already existing cooling towers, which basically cool down industrial processes. So this is also the last step of integration and which also brings in the last basically euros per ton to really get the capture cost to the price needed. So in a nutshell, it's the, it's the waste heat saving time and money on groundwork and the airflow you get from the cooling tower. Which, which makes us different. What does the relationship look like with the industry players that you work with here? So for them, the, the cooling tower owner has basically the opportunity to turn their, their cooling tower into a machine that not only like can create some money, for example, with carbon credits, future carbon removal credits, but also from them as a company, like enabling the carbon removal economy is something they are really looking into. 
regarding the, the relationship with the industrial player. Right now we install everything ourselves and we do everything ourselves because we need to learn how it works. But we see us also scaling with big industrial players to whom we can license our technology. So we are a team of scientists, engineers. We want to build something, we want to create something, but we don't want to roll it out to thousands of plants and worldwide. Ideally, those big players, big industrial players that have access already to thousands of cooling towers, they basically just need to go to their customer base and they can roll it out. And I don't have to build this B2B business relationships with big corporates, which I did before. It's, it takes years and it's not fast enough for the pace we are aiming for as a, as a startup, also not in terms of climate crisis we have ahead. So we scale with them with a licensing model. So they pay a certain fee depending on the number of installations and we can roll out on a global basis with them. For that, we have already quite some contact to players from, from Japan, to some players from India and to some US players, which are very open to yeah, license our, our technology from, from Germany, basically to, to their markets, to their customers. So taking this approach, it obviously will generate carbon credits. Yeah. It will also then reduce the price of the carbon capture process. What other benefits are there? So with this retrofitting, you can really get the cost down of, of carbon removal, like the energy that's more on the, on the OPEX side of things. Also, the airflow is more on the OPEX side of things, while the groundwork saves you, of course, on, on CAPEX. And what is another advantage, not in regards of price, but in regards of deployment speed, is that you are already in an industrial setup. So you don't have to work on, let's say, all the permits and everything. It's, it's basically, you, you need to be allowed to install another machine in a, in an industrial region. So it's, it's something quite easy to, to get because you are allowed to do anyway, your, your industrial process there. And I mean, the economic business case makes sense. What happens to the carbon that's captured? So the carbon, what is captured, it, it needs to be what we call sequestered. So meaning you need to like put it back underground, need to mineralize it. So we are only taking care of the capturing, but then we need partner companies that either put it into, for example, concrete, which is a very, very nice use case, or they really store it in, let's say, old oil and gas field, um, where you can store it for thousands or even millions of years to actually removing it from, from the atmosphere. Or another thing besides just that, of course, you could also use it as a, as a feedstock, for example, for, for your production, whatever product requires you to. Of course, then you have to think of, should I offer a carbon credit for that, depending how fast it enters the atmosphere again. But that's something basically the player has to decide. And also if they, if they find buyers for, for those certificates, of course. The CO2 commercialization market, we've touched on it a couple of times over our conversation. Where is it at at the minute? So right now there are, there are quite some industries that, that need CO2 as an, as an input for their process. Just, just to name some, it's like. For example, carbonated drinks, but also greenhouses, you need it for some chemical productions, but also in welding, for example, as a shielding gas. So there are some industries, like we have identified a bit more than 20 that actually use it quite heavily. And right now they get it from other suppliers like Linde uh, Messer, for example, and they get it as a, as a byproduct from ammonia production. So they actually do like point source capturing and then supplying the, the industries which are needing the, the CO2 as a, as a feedstock, but of course those suppliers are sometimes like not, not reliable in, in that sense, because for example, they depend a lot on the energy price because it depends on the ammonia production. So when energy price goes up, gas prices go up, like, like it happened in Europe in the, in the past month, 
or here. Then the ammonia production goes down and then you have less supply of CO2. There have been a lot of breweries actually in Germany, which had no access to CO2 and they couldn't produce their beer, which is of course horrible for whole Germany, but especially for those breweries, because then they don't have a product. And for them, it would be also, of course, very interesting because then you have a very stable supply chain because it's basically in your own hands and the, the CO2 um, share in the atmosphere is nearly always the same globally. So there are some industries that are leveraging it right now, but what is interesting is also the upcoming market of basically new things that can be produced out of CO2. For example, there are certain fibers, so you could produce like clothes out of CO2, but you could also think like of, of concrete, which is very interesting because imagine if you could store CO2 in, in concrete, it would mean you, you can build more and you would basically save the world while building more. So you, the economy can still grow and you would even have a positive impact on the climate. So carbon negative buildings, but also like new fuels, like sustainable aviation fuels that are coming up where you also need CO2 and especially of course direct air captured CO2 as an input to decarbonize them. So there are some old, let's say, industries that needed it since the early days and you have a lot of new products just coming up that can be produced out of CO2 that are like getting more and more famous and the market is growing and growing. But of course, it's also for them, it's also still early in that regard. So from the sounds of it, we know how to capture the carbon. We know how to process it. We know how to store it. We also know how to use it and the different applications of CO2. The process is, is known. Where along the process are we coming across hurdles? Where, why isn't this a mature market yet? So it's, it's, it's clearly that we are living in a capitalistic system and the current price points are, are too high. So it's, it's, it's there. So we, we can utilize CO2, we can store it, we can capture it, but the current price points with like above 1000 euros per ton are just not feasible for most industrial players because it would not fit their emissions. So they, they can't afford it. So I run the numbers some, some months ago, I think if we would scale back now to the scale needed, we would spend like 12 to 25% of world GDP just on, on carbon removal which will never happen. So that's, that's the main challenge. So really getting those costs down and meaning getting those costs down means you, you need to cut the, the energy requirements of, of the process because that's a huge driver, but we also need a whole, um, let's say carbon removal economy, because right now there are some players like, like NeoCarbon and what we are doing, we repurpose existing, let's say machinery to perform direct air capture. But we, we don't get all the products we would like to get. Meaning we have like very, very nice calculations. We need a pump with that requirement. We need to liquefy it with that and so on. But we, we can't source those parts because there is no, no infrastructure. So we always have to look into, okay, what is out there? What we can actually use for that? And you, when you can really choose, then this becomes a very interesting industry when you really have an industry and not only like some players that build some machines. So I think those are the major challenges. So really getting the price down energy and a sufficient supply chain um, with, a, with a lot of, of players in that field. That's why I said like encouraging more people to joining this because probably there are some hundred business opportunities and within that, and even if you just, I don't know, supply, for example, the sorbent, like the chemical you need, which be a huge thing, can be an enormous company. So what, what does the next year look like for you? What are your top priorities and what, what keeps you up at night? So we now build our first unit, which is running in our, our lab and our facilities. 
which is which is nice and we are super proud of it. But of course, that's that's just the first step because, like I said, we want to do retrofit industrial sites. So so for us, it's about like installing this at the at the first customer. We have some discussions there, but of course, whoever is is open to like run pilots with us, meaning someone with a with a waste heat source can be very low quality waste heat. So talking about forty to one hundred degrees of, of waste heat, or someone with a with a cooling tower or commercial HVAC that that wants to pilot, happy to do this. So one of the two is enough for me in in, in that sense for the first integration step. So that's one thing, bringing this to to reality, and then. Working, of course, on the next-gen reactor. So we're already working on the next reactor, which brings the cost down even further with then also bigger bigger units. And the third thing is that we will now start to to fundraise. So for now, we have been very careful with the, with the money we spend. And I think we spend very, very little compared where we are right now. But for the next steps, basically rolling out this first unit, working on the next unit, we will definitely need more funds. Also, further investors that will also open doors for, to, for example, industrial players. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And with that, I'll leave you to it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, please do let me know your thoughts via LinkedIn. Thanks and goodbye.